This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Uh, it really is a pleasure to share the dais with uh, two notable translational researchers. And I, I do sort of have the feeling we're kind of going in reverse order here. Um, but um, yeah, I, I've been set up. Luckily, I'm going to end with exactly some of the same slides you've already seen. So maybe that's sort of good. Um, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest other than publicly funded grants. Um, everything, and, and this is kind of the, the basic story I'm going to try to tell. Basically, everything we know about the clinical phenotype we learned in 1967. This is good, um, and as you're going to see, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a challenge. Um, um, that clinical syndromes are really quite common in medicine. There's nothing new for any of us um, who practice either in the ICU or outside of the ICU. That we have these challenges that you've heard because we don't have a troponin um, for acute lung injury, for ARDS. We've been looking for it for a long time. Uh, we may be getting there with combination markers, but we're, we're not there yet. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Berlin definition. Um, talk a little bit about how it's fared in the literature. Um, and then kind of a, a move forward with some data that you've already seen. Um, everybody knows this paper. We certainly quote it all the time. Um, I had the honor of working with Dave Ashbaugh when I was a junior faculty in Seattle, and I learned so much from him that had absolutely nothing to do with medicine. But this paper, um, I, I really um, challenge all of you to go back and read this paper. We do this about once a year with our fellows, um, and it is a classic. Um, a lot of what we have learned in the subsequent uh, 40 years is actually already in this paper. But for sure, the clinical phenotype, as you've heard that defined, um, is well described in this paper, um, including the risk factor distribution, response to PEEP, evolution, diffuse alveolar damage, surfactant loss. It's, it's all there. Um, but what that sort of means is anytime you try to define this, it's got to kind of look like this syndrome. Um, if we came out with a definition for ARDS that somehow missed a whole bunch of these patients, there, in an important way, there'd be something wrong with it. Um, if you'd like to know, that's called face validity. So anything we come up with has to kind of look on its face like what Ashbaugh and Petty have defined and what we look after. The concept of studying syndromes without um, gold standards, uh, we're not alone in this. Um, um, basically, the entire field of psychiatry is built on um, studying syndromes without gold standards. And I would argue that they are well ahead of us with regard to pharmaceutical development. So this argument that you can't come up with effective pharmaceutical drugs, um, we might debate how effective uh, the drugs are, but uh, they apparently are um, to some degree. The notion that you can't come up with effective pharmaceuticals until you come up with a troponin for depression is on its face uh, untrue. Um, so we just have to understand that, get better at it, get better both at our clinical phenotyping and at our biologic phenotyping. But this sort of, this cycle of despair that we get into for the lack of um, a troponin, it's clearly not the only barrier to this. As you all know, I won't revisit the American European Consensus Conference definition. Um, it, it moved the field forward in a transformative way because it sort of set some rules down that everybody would play by. But over the years, um, including contributions by people on the dais and in the audience, um, we learned a lot about problems with it. Um, the chest x-ray was problematic. Um, this concept of excluding congestive heart failure um, is problematic. We, we know that the PDEF ratio is treatment dependent. It's always problematic to have a definition for a disease that you can make it go away or come back by turning a dial on a machine. That seems problematic. Um, 
Um, the, the term ALI slash ARDS was used in a whole bunch of strange ways. Some people thought acute lung injury was everybody with a PDF ratio less than 300. Some investigators used it to refer to a group just with kind of a mild degree of hypoxemia. So there were a lot of sort of tweaks that were problematic with the definition. Previous attempts, um, this is work by Neil Ferguson, um, to kind of get better at at least the consensus part of this. Can we get more scientific with what we mean by a consensus definition by using very rigorous Delphi techniques? Yielded a definition that I'm going to tell you is pretty cool um, because in a circular way, you're going to see how Berlin kind of came back to this. And um, Neil and his colleagues and their, and their Delphi respondents said, you know, real ARDS is a group of patients who are still hypoxic after you give them PEEP. Um, it comes on rapidly, and it's not just a, a, a little bit of schmutz on the x-ray, it's a bad-looking chest x-ray, um, um, and still struggled with this non-cardiac um, issue, but also importantly, on standardized ventilator settings, these patients have low respiratory system compliance. Um, and it, I think on its face, this looks good. The, the rigorous Delphi techniques yielded this definition. And um, um, the problem is, is that, and, and they acknowledge this in the paper, it, we don't really know that it's better. It's certainly better consensus. It's certainly more rigorous consensus. Um, but um, they weren't really quite sure whether it was better in any way. And in fact, before you kind of talk about whether a definition is better, um, by the way, I, I've come to learn after trying to talk about this issue and um, bearing the brunt of critiques of it, better is basically what I think ARDS is. Uh, that's the criterion for better. Um, it turns out that's a little bit harder to measure. Um, but there are ways, people who study syndromes have ways of thinking about this. And for the Berlin group, we decided that uh, the only way that we kind of had to look at this was this thing about predictive validity. So does a definition predict something, or can you use it to predict something, or you can use some rules around prediction? Now, the most important kind of prediction is going to be response to therapy. Well, we'd love to have 20 different effective therapies to evaluate different definitions to see whether they better predict response to therapy. Uh, we have one or two, um, so it's hard to go, and they use the same more, more or less inclusion criteria. So we um, thought, well, we would try to predict things like ventilator-free days and mortality and clinical outcomes as a, as a kind of a way to define um, better. Um, one of the issues that, that comes up frequently, and you've heard this, um, this idea, and it's very persuasive biologically. Um, I believe that it's less persuasive clinically, but this distinction between direct lung injury, where there's a direct insult to the lung, and indirect lung injury, where we believe that the, the, the insult is, is, is more an endothelial or vascular side injury. And there have been a lot of investigators that have sort of looked at this, and at least with regard to predictive validity, now you've heard some important biologic differences, but at least with regard to predictive validity, this distinction between direct and indirect doesn't seem to pan out, at least in a fairly large meta-analysis. I'm not showing you, but we actually have conflicting data on whether direct versus indirect predicts PEEP responsiveness. So the, the Berlin group sort of thought about, should we make this direct versus indirect distinction, an important distinction for defining the syndrome? Um, and based on these data and some discussion, the decision was made not to include it. Um, I can tell you from the bedside in trying to make this distinction um, reliably for clinical cohorts, um, it's never been subjected um, to a, a rigorous assessment of whether we can do that reliably. Um, in my clinical practice, a, a huge variety of patients that I see, you know, trauma patients who aspirate have a direct crush injury um, and bilateral femur fractures with the possibility of um, marrow embolization as well as um, large uh, transfusions. Is that a direct injury or an indirect injury? 
Um, the patient with um, emphysematous uh, gangrenous cholecystitis who aspirates on their way to the ICU, is, that, is their ARDS direct or indirect? So in, in fact, when we've tried to categorize these in clinical cohorts, a lot of the patients get categorized as multiple um, risks and both that we could classify as both direct and indirect. I think the message from the, the Berlin definition before I tell you about it is it's very clearly an evolution um, um, of the American European Consensus Conference. There is nothing, and for those of you who read it and kind of went, eh, um, it's, uh, it's uh, very clearly meant to be an evolution, not a revolution in the diagnosis. Um, I think what the, the group did was introduce a framework, this concept of, okay, this, these are the rules we're going to stick by in terms of evaluating the definition, fixing some terms, um, requiring a minimal level of PEEP. Um, I think ZEEP is actually fairly uncommon now, so a minimum level of PEEP of five is, um, I think, you know, pretty, pretty standard, so may not have that much uh, effect on, um, uh, on differences. Um, it allows for the diagnosis in non-intubated patients with mild degrees of hypoxemia, allows for CT diagnosis, but I think most importantly, um, it, it allowed for the empiric evaluation and, as I'll show you, rejection of a more complex definition, and it provided, um, I think, educational material to enhance reliability. Um, so the way these things work is a group of people sit around and they review a lot of data and listen to a lot of talks and then have a bit of, I'll say, less uh, formal uh, than Delphi consensus. And the group kind of came up with a categorization of ARDS. So it looked like this, and the, the discussion was all around this severe group. Um, we were quite keen to identify a group of patients that people would say, okay, that's really ARDS. I'm not so sure about these patients with a little bit of schmutz on their x-ray with uh, you know, a PO2 of 100 on 50% oxygen by face mask. I'm not so sure about those, but these patients, and what I'll point out to you about this is, this looks a lot like the Delphi definition, um, more or less, right? It includes a more severe radiographic criterion, um, and it includes um, an attempt to look at dead space, um, and an attempt to look at respiratory system compliance. So it, it had a, a bunch of biologic plausibility as well as um, uh, face validity and corresponded a lot with the previous Delphi work. So what we thought is, well, we'll, um, we'll try to evaluate this and put together a large, very heterogeneous um, group of patients, including clinical trial patients, including epidemiologic cohorts, work from Dale Needham, um, Dale Needham, um, work from the Australian epidemiologic cohort, and also a very carefully studied group of patients who had uh, physiologic um, measurements um, through the Italian group, um, and thought, well, we can sort of look at some of these issues in these, in these cohorts. It's important to note that, of course, all of these patients got enrolled in these criteria because they met the American European Consensus Conference definition. So in a way, it's not the perfect group to uh, test a definition that's meant to be improving on that. The major, and this is really, um, the, in a way, uh, I believe, the major contribution um, of the approach um, of this. This draft definition, which had the um, more severe uh, PDF ratio, the requirement of more PEEP, a more severe chest X-ray, um, low respiratory system compliance, and, a, and an attempt, again, to look at dead space through a corrected minute ventilation, identified a group of patients who, were, who had, quote, severe ARDS, a relatively small group of patients, 14% in this very large cohort of patients, compared to a simpler definition that basically just used the PDF criteria. And what was important is they had the same mortality. So at least with regard to predictive, um, predictive validity, which were the rules we decided we were going to play by, um, these groups weren't different. 
Um, it, and the important point here is that's because we already started with stratification by PDF ratio. If we ignored PDF ratio and said, well, we're going to stratify this whole cohort by compliance, it would have looked very different. Um, but we had uh, decided to uh, stick with a PDF criteria, at least as a first pass through this group, um, since it was clinically evaluable. So this is it. This was the empiric rejection of, um, of this more severe, which doesn't mean that this might not be an interesting group of patients uh, for a whole variety of interventions with regard to uh, treatments that might target um, specific pathophysiology within that group. Often overlooked um, and work led by Eddie Fan, putting together a large body of educational materials, including training radiographs, case vignettes to think about the left atrial hypertension congestive heart failure that had gone through at least this consensus process and thinking by experts in the field to help guide case identification. And I think this is often um, overlooked as a, as a potentially important contribution. So this is what we ended up with. Um, again, I think not uh, revolutionary in terms of categorization of patients. Um, and I think some more specific advice about the chest radiograph, and I'll show you some data about why that's likely still to be problematic. So what's been the, uh, the field's response to this? About 48 papers have talked about either using or evaluating the Berlin um, definition in ARDS since its publication. Um, and the response has been largely, well, it does, when we use the overall um, Berlin definition, some papers say, yeah, it uh, categorizes patients a bit better by mortality, it predicts mortality overall, a little bit better than the American European Consensus Conference, or mostly papers have said, not, no, it doesn't. So it doesn't add anything because when we compare the Berlin categorization by, for mortality versus the American European, they, they give basically the same predictions for mortality. Um, a literature that says that this categorization does not correlate with diffuse alveolar damage, doesn't identify patients with a histologic um, phenotype of ARDS, does seem to correlate with extravascular lung water, um, and overall I'd say people are generally critical of the whole exercise. Um, and uh, I would also say they generally miss the point. Um, so what, 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 uh, what do I mean by that? Am I just sort of being uh, sort of defensive? So uh, maybe. Uh, um, so uh, a big critique is, uh, hey guys, uh, two things. First of all, who cares about an area under the receiver operating curve of 0.58? I mean, for those of you who don't live these numbers, like, you know, Apache's about 0.8-ish or so. So 0.58, pfft. Um, and this difference between 0.58 and 0.54, like really, who cares? I will tell you, this graph and this p-value is mostly irrelevant um, to the entire exercise because the Berlin definition is not a prognostic model. That's such an important point, I put it up there twice. Um, how do I know that? Because I've built prognostic models for ARDS, and I can tell you with my eyes closed, I can do better than PDF ratio as a risk stratifier <coughs> for ARDS. All I need to do is add age. You can't include age as a definition for a syndrome. So the Berlin model was never, uh, so I, there I called it the model, the Berlin definition was never designed to be a risk prediction tool. Um, so the fact that it doesn't do it very well or doesn't do it better, the American European Consensus Conference, is quite frankly irrelevant. The predictive validity was there to evaluate um, um, the, the specific uh, sub-definition. Okay. Um, it doesn't identify um, diffuse alveolar damage. This is work by Thiel, which you um, all uh, know that uh, if you look at this white box, which is diffuse alveolar damage among the mild ARDS patients, 
relatively few of them had diffuse alveolar damage, and it increased as you moved up with severity to the point that you know, somewhere around 60% of patients with severe ARDS had diffuse alveolar damage. But what I always point out in, in this slide and the work that Andres Esteban had uh, written about from a similar cohort uh, in Annals of Internal Medicine, what the other patients have is pneumonia. And in this other diagnostic group, there are a lot of patients who have alveolar hemorrhage, for example. Now, it's hard for me to understand that a disease caused by pneumonia, that pneumonia can't be a criterion for that disease. Diffuse, not all of the animal models that uh, um, people study uh, for clinical insights um, for ARDS cause diffuse alveolar damage. It's a time-dependent phenomenon, so it'll have to do with when patients die, that you catch it. It can be sporadic, so you may or may not see it in, this, in the slice that you're looking at. And I think most importantly, I am told anyway, that diffuse alveolar damage is, is not a known target for the drugs that we've been developing. If it is, if a, if a drug developer is saying, yeah, I've got this DAD-specific molecule that targets DAD or prevents DAD, um, then we need a different definition. Or you have to en only enroll severe patients in power for the fact that only about 60% of your patients are going to have it. I'll also point out that, that these points and others um, were made um, incredibly well by uh, Taylor Thompson and Michael Matha in, uh, in an editorial accompanying the Thiel paper. Um, an important point was that uh, well, you guys didn't either account for mean airway pressure in the definition by using something like the oxygenation index, or you didn't use standardized ventilator settings. And Jesus Vlaar has really taught us really nicely that if you put patients on standardized ventilator settings, particularly with a PEEP greater than 10 and an FiO2 greater than 0.5, and wait 24 hours, patients stratify better, more cleanly, with those criteria, with those criteria than they do from their baseline PDAF ratio. And, and, and I think this is an important observation. I think this observation is further validated by work that Ewan Gallagher has done with uh, Neil Ferguson and others, reanalyzing um, the Love's uh, trial a cohort of the Love's trial patients and treating them as a as a as a in a cohort analysis, um, recently published in uh, the Blue Journal, showing quite nicely that patients who are PEEP responsive, patients who improve their oxygenation when um, increased PEEP is applied, have lower mortality. Um, this wasn't seen by changes in their PCO2 or static compliance. So PEEP responsiveness is a good prognostic test. Um, uh, in looking at patients with, um, with ARDS. So why, why not do this? Why not say, uh, okay, we're gonna require a minimum PEEP of 10, um, wait 24 hours, look at the gas exchange then, and classify patients based on PDF ratio? I think it's a terrific idea. Um, it puts me out of business, but it's a terrific idea. Um, now why do I say it puts me out of business? Um, this then would make it impossible to diagnose ARDS without um, consent to put a patient on standardized ventilator settings. So we would no longer be able to look at epidemiologic cohorts of patients with ARDS. Um, um, that's not a problem. Uh, it's a problem for a certain kind of research. Um, but for clinical trials, nothing about uh, the Berlin definition uh, prevents a trial investigator from saying, um, I want to wait 24 hours uh, before I give my patient my therapy. I think that's not a problem. And I'm going to uh, consent people for standardized ventilator settings and then um, see what their oxygenation is like. A another criticism is that we didn't include um, things like extravascular lung water or CT or biomarkers or PET scans. 
And I think these are all good ideas. The problem is when you're coming up with a definition that can be used in a whole variety of settings, community hospitals, um, epidemiologic research, quality improvement research, um, uh, some of these are unfeasible. It's unfeasible to say uh, you need a CT scan to enroll this patient. You've just taken a lot of your unstable and sickest patients out of your clinical trial because um, doctors will be unwilling to order a research CT on those patients and subject them to that risk. The biomarker story, as you've heard, we don't have the biomarker to include. There is not sufficient evidence to include a biomarker assay as part of the definition. But again, importantly, this doesn't prevent you from doing uh, a genetic assay, as Jason has suggested prior to enrollment in an, in an, in an endothelial supportive strategy trial. It doesn't prevent it. Uh, the, the literature just simply doesn't support using these right now. I'm going to show the same slide Michael showed, um, and um, I'm going to take another crack at explaining what latent class models are. Um, and I think if you bear with me for a second, I'm going to try to persuade you that this is worth devoting um, a few neurons to capturing, because you're going to be seeing more and more of these types of analyses um, in our analysis of both biomarker and genetic data, and trying to integrate those into um, uh, uh, clinical data to, to address this subphenotype issue. So the, this latent class model business is part of a whole bunch of different techniques of classification strategies or machine learning strategies um, that we're now learning to use on complex data sets. And, and here's the way I'm going to try to explain it to you. Imagine um, I handed out a survey to this group and asked you a whole bunch of questions about what movies you like to see, um, asked you uh, your feelings about premarital sex, asked you about your feelings about crack cocaine, asked your feelings about taxation, a whole bunch of questions like that. And I put it through one of these latent class model doohickeys um, and said, try to separate out these people into some groups. Does some of those things, movie selection, feelings about premarital sex, feelings about crack cocaine, uh, that's a local reference, by the way. Um, um, does that separate the groups into some, into some categories? And it, in this group, it, we might have one big category, I don't know. Um, but it might separate this group or a population to, into some categories. And you might say, well, it separates this group into categories pretty well, into two. Now, you don't have to have any theories whatsoever about conservative or liberal. You might attach those names later. But these questions would separate a population of people into some groups. Now, if you said, well, what about three groups? You could say to this tool, this black box, and said, yeah, it does kind of separate out into three groups. We've got these conservative people, but the conservative group kind of splits out into a conservative group and a libertarian group. So that's what latent class models, principal components analysis, that's what all of these clustering techniques try to do. They are hypothesis-free exercises. I don't know anything about um, political leanings, conservative or liberal, to do this kind of research. And a lot of these techniques are used in psychology to identify personality traits. You give people a bunch of questions, and then you say, oh, well, we've got some people who are very detail-oriented, we have some people who are very artistic, et cetera. So uh, hopefully that gives you another um, feel for what these techniques do. Of course, instead of a survey about, um, about movie likings and feelings about taxation, um, what uh, Carolyn did, and, and actually Jason a bit before, um, looking at uh, primary graph dysfunction, um, said, uh, well, we've got a whole bunch of other survey questions, except they are clinical attributes as well as some biologic uh, measurements. And we don't know anything. We're, we don't know anything about what kinds of these groups are. Now the, now the fun starts, right? Um, 
who's a conservative and what does that mean, and who's a liberal and what does that mean? We sort of have conservatives and liberals. And Michael did a much better job than I ever could to sort of describe what the biologic phenotypes are. I too found it very interesting that a whole bunch of biomarkers separated this group out. And remember, these weren't forced in or anything. This is kind of what the computer does. So I think people push back on this because of its hypothesis-free nature. But remember, we are kind of in a hypothesis-free environment now. We're really trying to explore these data to understand what these subphenotypes might be. So I think this is very interesting research, and uh, hopefully that gives you an idea about it. I want to mention this paper, which came out um, relatively uh, recently from Figaro Casas. And I think this paper is important and interesting for two reasons. It's important because of its findings, of course, but I think it's important because of the findings as well. Um, so what they did is they took a, a group of patients who were intubated and hypoxic and at risk for ARDS um, because they had identified sepsis or trauma. And this is important because they then subjected both these patients to a set of evaluations. Now, in this study, they were pretty simplistic. right? They looked at CT scans and x-rays. But you could imagine this cohort of patients having a much more detailed analysis that might include lung ultrasound, it might include EIT, it might include biomarkers. This is the group of patients where we need to, this hypoxic group of patients who are at risk for ARDS. And what they found, which won't probably surprise people, that when they did chest x-rays and CTs of them, that 12% of the x-rays that met a criteria for some trained observers for ARDS, 12% of them that were positive who would have been enrolled in a clinical trial, when they CT'd them, they didn't actually have ARDS. Um, they had, which I've seen more than once, large bilateral pleural effusions. I've cured at least one patient um, with PEEP unresponsive ARDS with bilateral chest tubes. Um, so not surprising, um, but, um, but, but that, and probably more problematic is the half of patients whose chest x-rays were read as negative, but when they were CT'd actually did in fact have um, bilateral infiltrates. And the, the, the kind of the radio, radiologic phenotype they had won't surprise you either. They had these dense focal posterior infiltrates, which we, we well recognize as a CT phenotype for ARDS, that spread up posteriorly along the, along the lungs. So when you take an AP x-ray, it kind of looks a bit fuzzy, but homogeneously fuzzy, and we say, well, it doesn't look like ARDS. Um, so I think this cohort is interesting, and I think the findings are interesting, because there clearly are a lot of patients um, that look like they don't have ARDS, um, who may indeed have it. The final way forward is work led by John Laffey, with, where we have a very large um, cohort of patients who are meeting um, a trained definition with acute respiratory failure. We're going to tease out the ARDS patients rather than asking doctors to recognize it and evaluate that. And interestingly, within that, um, Eddie Fan is leading a randomized controlled trial evaluation of a training module to see whether we can at least improve reliability a little bit with um, application of some training to case identification. So I, th I think I didn't overrun my last two minutes. So thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.